Good morning. Yesterday, the Northern Ireland Assembly was due to meet. And meet it did. But the DUP have blocked the appointment of a Speaker. So in effect, the Assembly will exist in name only. The News at One brought us this from Geoffrey Donaldson. Whilst others sit on their hands, we are not prepared to do that. We need decisive action taken by the government. So the message we're sending today is that the choice is clear. If the European Union is serious about protecting the political institutions and the Belfast Agreement and its successor agreements, the basis of political progress and stability in Northern Ireland, then they know what they need to do. And equally, the same message is there for our own government as well. Uh, It has been almost two and a half years since uh, the parties gathered here and uh, reached an agreement, new decade, new approach. But I'm afraid it's the same old approach, dithering and delay, talking with no action. And the government signed up to that agreement. And all of the signatories to that agreement recognised the commitment that was made to restore Northern Ireland's place within the UK internal market. So where to now? Northern editor Vincent Kearney gave us his take on what might happen next. Uh, Well, what will happen this afternoon is the acting speaker will formally adjourn the assembly, the sitting of the assembly, and he'll adjourn it with no return date uh, because it won't return uh, until or if the parties can agree to go into power sharing together. Uh, Now, they will have six months in which to reach agreement if they can't do so, Northern Secretary Brandon Lewis is under a legal obligation to set a date for a new election. And at this stage, it has to be said, Justin, the omens are, aren't that good. Um, Edwin Proust, the former DUP leader, speaking on, on Wednesday night, said the party is fully prepared to go into a series of elections over the next couple of years if it has to. Now, clear, clearly there's a bit of a bluster here and a bit of negotiation, but certainly there are some within the DUP who are saying that if there's not an election, uh, if there's an election in this autumn and that doesn't resolve matters, they're quite prepared to go for another one. So the message they're sending to the government is that this is a long-term stance. This is not a, a temporary suspension. I have to say, members of the other parties are scratching their heads a bit. As far as they're concerned, this is the DUP once again putting their trust in Boris Johnson and the British government. Now, Boris Johnson has let them down on many occasions. Senior DUP members can see privately that they don't trust Boris Johnson politically. They aren't convinced that he will deliver they're hoping he does, but if, if he doesn't, they and the institutions here at Stormont are in a fair bit of trouble. Oh my. Speaking of Edwin Boots, on Wednesday's Morning Ireland, Audrey spoke to the former DUP leader and newly elected MLA. Well, it's pretty simple. You can have the Northern Ireland Protocol or you can have the Northern Ireland Peace Process, but you can't have both. Uh, so the institutions, the structures of the Good Friday Agreement will collapse if you continue with the Northern Ireland Protocol. And that's, that's the reality that's there. And that has been something which has been driven by um, the European Union, uh, we believe had significant influence from uh, your former Prime Minister and, and, and Foreign Minister. And uh, that has been problematic. But we're now at crunch stage. And if people want to destroy the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, then they can do that by insisting um, on the implementation of the protocol as it currently exists. But is it not only your party that is threatening to destroy the structures of the Good Friday Agreement? Yes, but the structures of the Good Friday Agreement were set up um, on not on majoritarianism. They were set up on having government which brought both sides of the community with it. And now, you're refusing la, la, to take part in that government? 
uh, yes, now, now there is not one unionist MLA that supports the protocol. Therefore, the, the European Union is insisting on driving a coach and horses through the Belfast Agreement. And that is intolerable. It is intolerable for the UK government. It should be intolerable for the Irish government. Later on drive time, a slightly indiscreet Tory MP, Simon Hoare, who's also chairman of the Northern Ireland Select Committee. And he gave the skinny on the view from the blue corridors. There were obviously some who, you know, go into some sort of um, ecstatic trance uh, whenever there's the thought of a punch-up with the European (laughs) Union. It's part part of their sort of, you know, DNA. It's like a good Friday night out in a town centre. You know, if they can have that once a week, they're they're feeling happy. Um, I think what we have to move on from is that um, we have to move along. uh, We have to move away from the lazy politics. This is not. This is not about delivering Brexit. This is not about whether you believe in Brexit or voted for Brexit or not. Brexit is done. It's a historical event, and we're now implementing. And business and the economy is changing to reflect the fact that we've left. So to sort of have this as sort of, oh, well, if we give an inch on this, that or the other, you know, Brexit will be in jeopardy. It's frankly for the birds. It's it's a bit of red meat to try and throw to people. And I hope nobody's going to be gullible enough to sort of swallow it up because it's rancid and it's not going to be very palatable. And it's a useful distraction. It's a useful distraction, isn't that right, for Boris Johnson whenever he gets uh, a little bit of pressure from the media or maybe from within his own party? Look, all party leaders of whatever colour, when they come under a bit of pressure, will look for a bit of red meat to throw to their their core supporters. You know, find a distraction. Chuck a dead cat on the table and everybody will start talking about the dead cat. On Thursday, the UK Foreign Secretary Liz Truss and her EU counterpart, Maurice Sefcovich, had what sources described as a tetchy phone call. The UK are now threatening to override certain aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol unless the EU sees fit to be more, and I quote, flexible. But a woman that sounded more exasperated than limber was EU Commissioner Maureen McGuinness with Clare. Boris Johnson is counting on the EU not wishing to engage in a trade war over this, saying it would be crazy for that to happen. Is he right there? Well, look, none of us want a trade war. I mean, Boris Johnson should do everything to avoid a trade war. But he shouldn't second-guess us either. Uh, We have to try and believe, and it's, it's being stretched at the moment, that the UK government is acting in good faith, that Boris Johnson really wants to sort out the problems with the protocol, but doesn't want to see this that he wins and we lose. I sometimes worry that we're still having this debate about Brexit rather than a discussion about how we resolve the problems in the protocol. So frankly, as somebody said to me this morning, sporting in nature, this could be like the haka before the game. But it shouldn't be a haka because this is not a game. This is about people's lives and livelihoods. It's about their security of, of where they are. And it's about opportunity. And I do not understand why a British Prime Minister would not want the best for his uh, citizens in Northern Ireland. But given everything that is happening in Europe right now, can we really count on Brussels to dance with the one that brung you? We are asking our EU colleagues to choose between EU solidarity with Ireland or a trade war at a really difficult time. And we're betting that the EU will choose the trade war. Well, why would we not bet? And this isn't a betting game. And this is not us standing in the corner waiting to be asked who's going to dance with us. Is it the UK or the EU? We're in the EU um, block. And I, I, I sometimes think that that has to be reinforced. 
uh, what's really significant is that the Irish issue and the Irish voice is critical to finding solutions with the European Union. So I don't think it's helpful for um, anyone to say, well, Ireland is apart from, that it's almost a triangular conversation. It's a two-way conversation that will solve these issues. Yeah, but we're, asking them, to, we're is, asking them to accept skyrocketing prices at a time of war, increasing inflation. We're asking them to make that situation worse by choosing a trade war with Britain because we can't sort this problem out with them over here. No, I'm sorry. I don't agree with your scenario at all. I do agree with the first part of your statement that we are faced with astronomical um, issues around costs. So we have problems out of COVID. We have problems, awful problems because of this war. Ukrainians have really big problems with this terrible war that's happening there. So a trade war is something we should all work to avoid. How does that look? If I were Vladimir Putin listening to this conversation, which I dare say he's not, and she hears and sees an escalation about something that's solvable between two allies that are working against him and hard together on sanctions. I mean, I'm sure he's, he's enjoying this because it looks like division rather than unity. We will not allow disunity because of this. We will not take our eye off our objective here, which is to solve the problems for the people in Northern Ireland and with the people and business people in Northern Ireland. And that has to be done with the United Kingdom government negotiating. And for Minister of State for European Affairs Thomas Byrne on Thursday's drive time, this was a legally binding agreement. We'd been here before and it would all be OK, wouldn't it? Is this a case of the UK, London, finally out, outsmarting or outboxing the European Union here? They always knew... Oh, Cormac, on, on, on what basis do you let say me, that? Let me ask you the question no, first there's no, there's no basis but, for the but, question. But let me ask you the question and you can answer then. They always knew it would come to this. They always hoped for a divide and conquer uh, strategy. That is exactly what they are doing. Emmanuel Macron said recently that they want to move on from uh, Brexit and they want to move on from the protocol, that it's simply taking up too much time. Michel Barnier, during the time the prospect and the negotiation of a no-deal Brexit, raised the idea of uh, Czechs and Irish ports. That has been discussed before in Brussels, um, but we moved away from it when there was a deal finally. And I put it to you that they simply knew all the time, the UK, that this was in the ether, and that's what they're pushing for now. Well, I, I know what they would like politically. They've certainly pushed the boat out on a number of occasions, but I also know they've pulled back on a number of occasions over the last couple of years. So I think we have to keep going back to that. And there are questions that really shouldn't be posed to me, but really challenge the British government as to why they're not complying uh, with international agreements and why it is absolutely essential in the interest of the people in Northern Ireland, the interest of certainty that they do. And that's where the challenge should be, not to the Irish government. The Irish government is doing absolutely everything to keep calm, keep firm, um, to protect peace, to protect the Good Friday Agreement by trying to work together rather than doing unilateral actions, which the British government have proposed on a number of occasions, have gone as far as going through Parliament uh, with the Internal Markets Bill, but haven't actually pulled off. And I still think, and I still maintain, uh, that ultimately they're not going to be able to pull this off um, because it simply would be very destructive for everybody if they did that. Thomas Byrne on Drive Time. Brexit. Deja vu. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Brooke Scullion did us proud, but Ireland is not in the Eurovision final. Robbed, says some. Now, the favourite for many is Ukraine. 
Timur Moroshnichenko is a commentator for Eurovision on Ukrainian TV, or Marty basically, and he is doing his job from a bunker. But he took time out to talk to Ray. I know, you know, in previous years, it's 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 a it's a huge bit of fun uh, commentating on the Eurovision because there's a daftness about the Eurovision, isn't there? There's a sort of escapism about it. But but this year, it's it's so symbolic what you're doing. Yeah, it's so symbolic. But I'm just uh, you know doing my job. Yeah, I know, <laughs> I know, I know, yeah, yeah. I know, uh, of I know. Course, of course, inside uh, inside me, there is a uh, there is a lot of different emotions, and of course, uh, this year. I don't have that energy to co- commentate, comment as usual. Yes, yes. But I think that uh, during the first semifinal, it was more homely, we can say like this. Like we, we sit with the, all the audience uh, behind, uh, uh, by one table behind the TV set and watching uh, our favorite show and that's it. Yes, I, I understand. And probably more intimate because you... you you were very much more than ever before sharing the experience of the people who were watching you. Yeah, sure, yes, sure. Yeah, yeah. And with all eyes and possibly votes on Ukraine to win, what does he think their chances are? Do you think uh, you, the Ukrainian entry, Kalush Orchestra with Stefania, do you think it's going to win on Saturday night? We'll see. I, I Really, I don't know. Because uh, uh, for me, they have to be in top five, definitely. But uh, of course, uh, uh, I can understand that uh, they will get uh, they will get uh, additional points, additional votes yes. from the audience just uh, for the bravery of Ukrainians, just to support uh, Ukraine in these uh, horrible times. Of, of course, we understand, but I don't know if uh, it will be enough for the for the victory. <laughs> right, I I, th- I, th- I have a feeling it will be. Uh, there's so much support across Europe for Ukraine. Um, maybe, maybe. And, and people want to show their solidarity and, and one way of showing their solidarity I suppose is to vote for the, UK, the Ukrainian entry in the Eurovision Song Contest it's a small thing yeah, but, right. but, it's but not about politics anymore no, no, of course it's no. not about the politics it's just about solidarity and, yes. uh, and the, about the unifying of all the, of, of all the countries it's yes. very important for us and of course this victory for Ukraine will be very symbolic yes. very symbolic yes. and uh, you know as I uh, joking that it will be just the first victory before the main victory. <laughs> well, let's, <laughs> let's hope, let's hope. Eurovision commentator Timo Morishnichenko with Ray. On Claire Byrne, ticks. What happens is you're rubbing your dog down or your cat dog and you yeah. feel a little lump. You feel a little lump. You might mistake it for a little wart or a pimple or thing, something like that. Sometimes we get dogs or cats in and we, they think it's some, you know, some sort of skin problem, but actually it's a tick and we need to remove it. Mm-hmm. Bet Claire Mullins on ticks and tick prevention. But what caught the ear was just how they found their way on to the host. Creatures both crafty and sneaky. They're not actually insects. They're actually technically arthropods. So they've got eight legs instead of six. They're um, daredevils of the, cre- of the little creatures of the world because how they attach to... Any mammal or avian species is that they climb up like tall vegetation, like tall grass, and they just keep their front legs out and they wait. It's called a, it's called questing. So they wait there until they feel, you know, heat temperature or carbon dioxide from a host passing by, and then they just drop onto you. So they so just they're fall. just hanging around there with yeah. their little pincers out, exactly. waiting for a dog or a person yes. or a 
cow to walk past that yes. they can latch onto. And they just drop and then they bite and that's how they attach. And then they have kind of vampire um, tendencies where they suck blood and they need they need us, they need our blood, our animal's blood to complete their life cycle. So they go from a larvae to a nymph or to an adult and they need a blood meal to continue their life cycle. And a female tick needs a blood meal to to lay eggs. Mm -hmm. So they're codependent on us. And getting rid of them, equally no crack. I remember my father removing ticks um, with his fingers. I don't know if that's what you're supposed to do. <laughs> not recommend it, Claire, no. Is it it's, not? Why? Um, it's because it's, it's, they're actually, they have a very deep mouthpiece inside right. in the skin. So you really do need to take the, the mouthpiece out. So if, if you are unsure, bring your dog to the vet or bring your cat to the vet. And if not, you can get these tick removers. They're like little tweezers, but you slip the instrument underneath the tick yeah. and then you, you twist in a clockwise direction until the tick just comes away from the from the skin and it is it's it's very important that that mouthpiece isn't left because that can cause abscesses and things later on so if you're pulling them out uh, yourself with your hands yes. you could be leaving something behind that will cause a problem and as well you know if you if you squeeze uh, a tick you can actually if they god if they do have Lyme's disease within the tick you can actually press that bacteria into the skin and increase the infection rate <sighs> says it all Monday saw the return of hot mess and in a week where we had a climate update from the World Meteorological Organisation which says that we have a 50-50 chance of reaching 1.5 degrees in the next five years. So hotter and faster. And all of this against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine. Philip spoke to climate scientist Svetlana Krakowska in Kyiv. Climate change is accelerating and we need to accelerate our measures and our action. I don't, I don't see any reason to live if, if not do uh, this work now for our future, for, for our children. As the war progressed, Svetlana says that she thought more and more how similar the world at two or three extra degrees of warming would be to the war zone that she found herself living in. We now in pain. We're really in pain and we, our soul cries. But it could be the same if we will have the world with higher global warming and we will have these tropical cyclones, we will have much more extreme events and they will diminish our cities. And there is no doubt in her mind that the causes of warming and war are the same thing. Well, I, I would say that everything is connected in this world. In fact, this war is connected with climate change directly and directly with these fossil fuels and our addiction to these fossil fuels. From where Svetlana is sitting, she told me that freedom from Putin's tyranny and freedom from fossil fuels were both really the same freedom. And the sooner that we all achieve energy freedom, the sooner she felt that her country would be truly free of Russia's reign of terror. As we talked about how that addiction is funding the war, occasionally the way Svetlana pronounced fossil fuels sounded a little like she was saying fossil fools. I thought about getting her to correct it, but then on reflection, wouldn't fossil fools be a really good name for this episode? 
leading Philip to do a deep dive on the many obstacles in our planning system to getting alternative energy sources up and running. And on the way, he debunked one myth, the idea that little old Ireland doesn't sully its hands with Russian gas and oil. Effectively, uh, at the moment, okay, it said in the UK that they're only 3% dependent on Russian gas, but that ignores the Russian gas coming through the pipelines from the Netherlands. Jerry Duggan is a fellow at the Irish Academy of Engineering. Relying on the BP, British Petroleum, statistical review of gas imports, the authoritative source on the subject, his analysis suggests that the UK is underselling the figures on its Russian gas dependency, which means by extension, we are too, because that is where we get the bulk of our gas. BP, in their annual statistical report for 2020, reported that the UK was dependent on Russian gas for nearly 16% of its gas imports. And the British government says that that figure is actually only 4%. Because they only record in their figures the liquid natural gas that comes shipped directly from Russia. Now the Netherlands is having to import half of its gas requirements. So anything coming from the Netherlands is not originating there. So effectively it's coming from Russia. 16% of UK gas imports are Russian, according to BP. So a smaller but still very considerable proportion of Ireland's will be from Russia too. Hot mess with Philip on Monday. Yesterday, Montrose finally unmasked and Ryan's happiness palpable. It's so funny. I walked across the campus and I met Damo from Staging. I said, Damo, what are you doing wearing your mask? And he said, are, are they off? I said, yeah, they're gone. Shoo, mask off. And I met Damo and I said, Damo, you don't have to wear the great mask off. And everyone was like watching flowers bloom as you walk past them after the winter. It's right, Dave, you just took your, shoo, gone. I thought you were reminded. And you don't have to. So there's no judgment. I'm just saying, that, isn't it wonderful that if you can, you can. And even better, tonight on The Late Late Show, for the first time in two years, I'm going to be able to see the faces of the, of the studio audience. For the first time in two years, I'm going to see human faces reacting to what's happening in the studio. And it's going to be glorious. And a similar phew when Joseph O'Connor came into studio. It was great to see you, Ryan. Likewise, always good to see you, but I think particularly more so today because um, this is, we, we, did, we did something today that you haven't done for two years, just a second ago. A very simple act that is done by humans Every day, sometimes 10 times a day. Yes, we should probably specify. I think uh, now we should. <laughs> yeah, we shook hands. Uh, and uh, so you're the first person I've shaken hands with in two years. That feels so strange around. to hear. Yeah, well, I actually got to the point where even, you know, if you're watching something on the telly, if you're watching a drama where people met and embraced <laughs> yeah. or, or shook hands, you're going, oh, geez, I, I, should I ring Neffed, you know? <laughs> um, so it's been a very long, strange time for everybody. Oh, strange would be the least of it. But Joseph O'Connor was in studio to talk about something else. His writing of a new documentary series, The Liffey. I suppose it's looking at The Liffey as a living character. Um, And all Dubliners would know the phrase, and Olivia, perhaps from the Irish, Owen Naliffa. In the opening episode, which is on Sunday night, there's a wonderful sequence of the man called David Green. Yes, and he um, the job he has. Yeah, he he he's an amazing job. The puddle, the river puddle, 
flows through the Liberties, where my own family were from, um, under Dame Street and Temple Bar, and it enters the Liffey through a kind of beautifully built tunnel yeah. vault from the 19th century. And it's David's job to look after yeah. this. So, I mean, I would really recommend... Yeah, he goes right down. He, so he goes, he's lower down. He's, he's lower 65 down. years old. It, it's it's through, through an entrance yeah. hatch on Dame Street. And he goes down into this tunnel, which is so kind of spooky and evocative. Ishke Fuihalov, that's the term that jumps Ishke out. Ishke Fuihalov, uh, yeah. Well, beautiful, because as, as, as we were looking at David Green in his subterranean um, activities, hmm. I was thinking, wow, I could be walking along Dame Street and underneath there's a whole subterranean... Well, there is. And I mean, Ishka Fuihalov, the Irish phrase that means underground water, and it also means a conspiracy. Yeah. You know, if you have an Ishka Fuihalov going on with somebody, you're getting up to a bit of skullduggery. <laughs> and there is a touch of that in this beautiful kind of shadowy, echoey yeah. vault. And from one iconic Dublin landmark to another, we speak, of course, of Bono, who had a birthday on Tuesday and also announced he was publishing his memoir, Surrender. On the same day, Ewan McLeisett and Sarah Breen joined Ray to talk about their Ashling book. So is this a case of Bono shamelessly stealing their thunder? And if so, were they bitter? Not really. But you're, from, you're from a U2 house. I am. I think my first album was... God, would it have been the unforgettable fire? Yeah. Was that around the mid, early to mid 80s? Yeah, my brother was a big U2 fan. And one of the first times I ever remember him crying was my dad was like punishing him for some reason, was like, oh, you can't go to that U2 concert. And I was like, God, what did he do? (laughs) (laughs) I think he was allowed to go in the end. So yeah, yeah, it was, yeah, I was brought up listening to you too so I'm a fan till I die yeah I've not I don't have much time for people who are like you know oh I hate you too and let's all right you're like that's not an, an original like idea just <laughs> but, but brilliant songs you yeah know? brilliant songs like Joshua Tree what a what an amazing album yeah with without you still haven't found yeah. I'm looking for you know yeah. that early we played out of control there that was I heard it was amazing hit. and like god forgive me when Bono dies God, I don't Eimer. think there's going to be a chance. <laughs> Do we that's, have to go that's a, there? That's a big leap. <laughs> Bono, if you're listening. <laughs> but like, I don't think there's going to be anybody who's like, oh great, I hated Bono. I, I think know, everyone's going to be like, be what a funeral. massive loss. We'll be very sad. Oh, poor Bono, who is of course listening. Don't you mind them. Keep trucking, sir. Now, if you're going it to the cinema... And Colleen Kuhn is the one to go to. Rave reviews all over the shop and no different on Arena. Stars, Chris. It's flawless. It's just fabulously assembled. It broke my heart. It just put a huge smile on my face and I just wish Catherine Clint all the best for the future. Yeah. I think she has such a wonderful career ahead of her. Five out of five. Five, Deirdre. Yeah, there's a tenderness to this movie that I found just completely irresistible and I think you'd be really hard-pressed to find an audience member who isn't deeply, deeply moved by this. So five out of five stars from me as well. Ah, yes, and if I were allowed, I'd be doing the very <laughs> same thing. Sounds amazing. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Capes, Monocles and The Craft. Simon Callow talked to Ryan about theatre, darling, but started with his mother's rather harsh reaction when he told her he'd caught the bug. The idea that I would become an actor was just beneath contempt to her. The idea that I would... Uh, um, uh, she said, when I, I was at Queen's University in uh, Belfast, uh, in Belfast this is when I did the first acting I ever really did yep. in my life. And I, thank God, realised how absolutely 
awful I was and that I'd have to go away and find out if I could act at all. I had no idea whether I had the slightest talent at all. Mm. And then um, uh, I went to her and said, this is it, I'm leaving university. And she said, you're an idiot, you're yeah. an absolute fool, you have no talent, whatever. You will fail completely and abjectly, but, she said, uh, if you don't do it, you'll spend the rest of your life regretting it, so I think you should do it. But what don't a expect a single right. penny ever from me ever again for this. And and she she, 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 was she certainly was good to her word. <laughs> My what, a, what a complicated response to your decision to leave, like in, in the sense that she's going, you're terrible. Yeah. But you've got to do it. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's a very there, strange. There is some wisdom there is in it wisdom as well, is, yeah, you know, yeah. and it might have been true. Yeah. It might well have turned out that I, indeed, for my first 18 months at drama school, I think almost everybody thought uh, he's absolutely hopeless. I was hanging by a thread, oh, uh, as they later told me. But then suddenly, and these things happen, yeah. I had a series of breakthroughs in my training, which is why one of the many reasons why I think training for actors is so important, because... It really takes time for you, unless you're preternaturally gifted, and mm -hmm. I obviously wasn't, um, to, to, to understand what the process of acting really is. And when I suddenly, it just absolutely uh, um, um, broke into my brain with the force of revealed truth yeah. what acting was, then there was no stopping me yeah, at all. You're in. You know. And along the way, he penned a letter to Larry. Dear Larry. But one day I was at the... Olvik, then run uh, as the National Theatre by Laurence Olivier, uh, I wrote a letter. I, I, yeah. I wrote a three, tightly uh, composed, th three foolscap page letter, typed by me on my own little typewriter, um, uh, to Laurence Olivier, explaining to him what a wonderful theatre he was running. And he wrote back and said, well, if you like it so much, why don't you come and work here? There's a job in the box. <laughs> in fact, I don't think he said come and work. He yeah. said, come and meet the box office manager and, and we'll see if you can get a job Great. in the box office. And so I had this interview and I was in. And then, boy, was I ever in because I, I, I just, I, I, I saw the life of the theatre. Yeah. I saw what it is. I saw what the work is. And it thrilled me so much. And so then I rather cynically just went to, to university in order to act. And he told this very funny story about an encounter with Michael MacLeamore when Callow had volunteered to interview him for the student magazine. Found myself in Harcourt Terrace where wow. Michael and Hilton uh, lived and, and held court, you know, and um, was utterly, totally bewitched by this extraordinary man. Bewitched is, I think, pretty well the right word. It was like he was casting a spell. Um, but it was so exotic and peculiar to meet in 1969, you know, in, yeah. in, in, in modern Dublin. He was, he was, he was uh, wearing a, a smoking jacket. Velvet. Or, the, yes, it yes. was velvet, but I'm trying to get the, the red burgundy. Oh, sorry, excuse me. Burgundy yes, velvet yeah, yeah, uh, with, with toggles and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, he was also quite clearly heavily wigged. And uh, he heavily but incompetently wigged, <laughs> and um, uh, wearing makeup. I mean, a great deal of it. And uh, yes. I had not encountered anybody in real life uh, uh, like that. And uh, but once he started to speak, he just spanned this 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 continuous web of charm and fascination and wit and outrageousness and uh, um, uh, 
uh, a very saucy uh, conversation yeah. it was altogether. And so I, 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 I recorded it all and, wow. uh, and dragged the great big machine back to um, my uh, digs in, in Belfast and uh, then started the extremely tiresome work of transcribing it, a long conversation, you know, yeah. and eventually I sort of gave up and started making it up or, or remembering <laughs> as best I could, you know, and finally filed the piece and sent it to him. And, and then he, he wrote back and he said... Uh, um, uh, your piece was the first truthful interview I've ever had with anyone. <laughs> Absolutely wonderful the way you transcribed my every thought. <laughs> and such was their connection when MacLeamore travelled to Belfast. Simon Callow became his minder and was given this encouragement of sorts. He finally adjudicated me and said, my very dear friend, oh, Mr. Simon nice. Callow, <laughs> not, I fear, a born actor, <laughs> oh, a no. born writer, perhaps, <laughs> because, of course, the piece I'd written about him. So I said to him afterwards, Michael, um, this is very um, um, uh, shocking to me. You, you said I wasn't a born actor. Ah, but you could become one, my dear boy. <laughs> <laughs> so it's how you become a born actor. Oh, I, uh, is the puzzle has been the continuing puzzle of my life. And finally, this text. Could you ask Simon about filming that hilarious scene in Room with a View when they had to run around the pond naked? Uh, you can give it a simple answer to that. Was it a, a joy or a torture? It, it, it was a torture because it was so cold. Oh, no. They had promised that they'd warm that <laughs> pond up. It was absolutely freezing. So as, I, as I've often said, it, it resulted in the proof of the old axiom, there are no small actors, only small parts as a result. Simon Callow with Vine. On drive time, slathering on the Factor 50. Lovely. But in the front garden? <sighs> Another person says we have a leathery old man. That's a terrible description. A leathery old man who sunbakes. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I don't think I'm going to be able to finish reading that text because um, I will. No, I will. We have a leathery old man who sunbakes in tiny shorts. <laughs> no, I can't finish reading oh, that text. Go on, go on. <laughs> Sorry. Do the leathery old man justice, Sarah. <laughs> he sunbakes in tiny shorts right outside the communal door of the mm. apartment block. This is across from our house. People have to walk right past him to get inside. It doesn't have to be warm either. It just has to be sunny and it ruins the view on a sunny day, says Mary. Now, is that acceptable? Or does the leathery old man, he's in an apartment block. <laughs> well, I, I think it would be kind of him to to, to buy the baggier shorts rather than the spandex, because <laughs> old men with spandex bums don't are not attractive. I don't care who they are. Oh come it can on be now, ladies! I can't believe I'm hearing this on the national airwaves. If that were a woman. You would be lambasted, <laughs> and rightly so. Uh, but you're just saying if you wore uh, bigger listen, shorts, I mean, that would I help. Live, I, I, live in, I live in Wicklow, so we've got thousands of spandex bumps every weekend out on their bicycles, <laughs> and it's you, a Dina. lovely sight. Look. It's a lovely sight to see the leathery old man with the one off white shore about. Myself and the leathery old man are going to launch a campaign against their breaths to hell with Great, that Great, we'll see Cormac out in his tiny shorts in the front garden anytime soon. Lucky. <laughs> for, for lucky. <laughs> Tina, thank you as always. Thank God it's radio. On Liveline on Wednesday, this burning question. Well, how could false eyelashes damage your education or someone else's education? I, I... How indeed. And all prompted by Gemma and her 16-year-old daughter who goes to a school with quite the dress code. 
Full school yeah. uniform only uh, to be worn once in school, but only no hoodies, uh, no jackets allowed to be worn once in the school building, no hoodies, school and non-school hoodies, only one earring or none per ear allowed, no tongue piercings if student <laughs> is found to have it. Why are you laughing? No tongue piercings. If student is found to have one on tongue, uh, they are sent home immediately. No multiple earrings allowed. No nose or chin piercings allowed. Conventional haircuts and only natural hair colouring allowed. Hair, hair colouring allowed. One colour only. If a student is wearing fake eyelashes or fake nails, they will be sent home and allowed back to school once removed at home. So your daughter was sent home. She was sent home, but. It is, it's, it's my contention that the policy is extreme and that it's not allowing young people um, to express themselves. It also is impeding their right to an education, in my opinion. Classic lifeline it has been too long. Draconian schools crushing the creative spirit or rules be rules. Let the games begin. I've read four children and I have a granddaughter, my youngest being 25, and I feel that the children now are telling the parents what they'll do and what they won't do, that they're the authority. There is authority in schools. They should be wearing and doing what they're told. And I'm seeing in work all the time these children who think they can do what they want and behave in whatever manner they want. When you're 18, you can do what you want. But when you're under the guidelines of a school and there is a curriculum and there's a set, Mm -hmm. whatever, you abide by it. It's very fine at 17 years of age. They're going around with nails and they're going around with eyelashes and And so on and so on. Okay, what is wrong with eyelashes? It's only the start of what it escalates into. Into what? Into taking other things and how we'll do this and what we'll wear. Yeah, yeah. Gateway, let's bring Gemma back in. We think that children and adolescents absolutely need clear boundaries and clear guidelines. But it's my argument that the school policies are oppressive and I'll go as far as to say they are impeding uh, young people's education. That's just what I feel. I went to a a convent school in in first year. I left school and I went back to comprehensive in fifth and sixth year. Completely different. Wore whatever we wanted. There was Mohegans. There was everything (laughs) in the class. They didn't learn. They sat at the back of the class. They didn't learn. But the thing that I'm really finding very difficult in work... So you're saying, are you saying that there was basically a blanket ban on learning for those who were... They were rebels. Yeah, they were rebels. Yeah. They were, they rebels. were rebels. They did what they okay. wanted and wanted to do what they want. Well, um, I feel that that is a, it's far more complicated nowadays. And I think that that's somewhat of a narrow view of society. I, I think that it's mm-hmm. just far more complicated nowadays. That's just my opinion, you know? Well, yeah, we see we all have opinions. Which is indeed the joy of Liveline. Step up Graham, who had no strong feelings on an eyelash per se. But, you know, you did sign up for the school rules. That's like saying, OK, I'll do my driving Ooh. test, I'll abide by all the rules until I get my licence, and then, sure, 80 isn't really 80, sure, I can do 100 here and that's safe. You know, at what no, point no, do you... No, False eyelashes do not interfere with your driving, unless you're applying... Unless you're no, applying no, I'm saying it's, it's, you, a challenge. It's, it's rules challenging. We yeah, all follow rules, laws. Rules, we all follow lo- rules, don't what, we? Well, what do you think... Well, how could false eyelashes damage your education or someone else's education? I, I'm, I'm not saying... I don't, I'm not qualified to make that judgment. I'm just asking... No, but, you, but, you, but you're... 
Have you seen, have you ever seen anyone wearing false eyelashes? No, I don't mean Kim Kardashian or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Seen, yeah. And what do you yeah. think? Do you think it interferes with their ability to walk in a straight line or? <laughs> but I never made that assertion whether it does or it doesn't in the first place, Joe. You're trying to lead me down a garden path I here. I know, but what's All I'm, I'm, asking, asking, is, I'm asking the question, Graham. What do you what? think is wrong with false eyelashes? That's not really the issue. The issue is following rules that you were aware of before you started to join the school, the club, the society, the the, the world we live in. And callers into Joe talked about the overemphasis on looks, the cost involved that might put less well-off students under pressure. And Miriam phoned in. She felt that at the very least, eyelashes were distracting. And she told this story. It's the principal here. When you go to school, there's a code of practice. Right, yeah. and I'm not old-fashioned by no means because my son, 30 years ago, dyed his hair and he was in England, and I got a phone call saying your son has to leave the school and so he dyed his hair, he bleached it and it went orange mm. like, and I went down and like that I went kind of said but why like and then he explained it to me, he said it, he was rebelling, right against the 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 code of the school, I I actually brought him home and I shaved it off, sorry. I'm sorry, son, if you're listening, because there is a code and I hadn't read it properly. But I know children today, especially young teenagers, that are going to school with eyelashes that you can sweep, they can actually clean the rooms with, makeup, fake tan, you know, they can express themselves at home. But one voice for the defence was Fiona. I just think this whole issue is problematic on so many different levels. I think it's elitist. I think it's classist. I think it's trying to squash any vestige of individuality or girl or boy or whoever might want to have. You're in a uniform. You're attending school. Why does it give a damn if you've dyed your hair red instead of blonde? Like, there, it's a dot. So I've never been so rattled by a, a discussion in my life. Well, prepare thy cage for further rattling, Fiona. Here's you. You have to learn to say no. I don't know what these parents have an issue with. Is it the N or the O? These are all snowflakes that people don't seem to be able to say no to. Fiona, Fiona, you're a snowflake, whatever that means. Yeah, I don't know. I think I wear too much fake tan to be a snowflake. Um, I think (laughs) that... Have you ever been... Obviously, none of these people, I'm assuming, have ever been an insecure teenager. You know, I was in school, what, I graduated from secondary school 10 years ago now. I had spots, I had acne, I had greasy hair. If putting on fake eyelashes or fake tan or fake nails, it didn't affect my grades. I did my leaving but I did well. But God forbid I could have anything in my corner to give me a little bit of self-confidence. And, and I didn't express myself. You, go ahead. You said what part of what, the word no What about the rules? Can you not read the rules where it says no? And what part of no do you not understand? Is it the N or the O? Yeah, you but said that already, Hugh. Be... But no, I yeah, but I didn't get an answer to it. Well, you just I need to do what you like. You don't believe in rules. Of course I do believe in rules. But you just don't want to follow them. Do you believe in no. stu- well, do you have to believe in stupid rules if you think they're stupid? Well, if they're stupid, Joe, then you have parent-teacher meetings at the end of every year. You've changed the rules. There was a time in Ireland where smacking, corporal punishment was part of the rules in the school it was allowed. Absolutely, and I was a victim of that, Joe, and it didn't do me a bit of harm. Ah. So there. Last word on this to Fiona.
I mean, eyelashes. Like, if they can see their books, I don't see what the problem is. <laughs> Who is that offending? Have you ever been distracted so much in a class? You've turned over and you said, oh, teacher, sorry, I can't do my leaving search. The girl that is creating too much wind when she's fluttering her, her eyelashes. I just think it's a load of rubbish. Live line on Wednesday. And with all that's happening in the world, it was a tonic. Well, that is it for this week's playback. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next week. In olden days, a glimpse of stocking was a look on to something shocking. But now God knows anything goes.